Welcome back to another episode of Backlash Podcast. This week we're going to talk to Jordan Weeks, and Jordan works with the Wisconsin DNR. We've had Jordan on a handful of times in the past, I don't know, three episodes previously, I believe. So if you want, go check those out. Jordan is not going to give you the tips and tactics to break down your local waters. He's going to talk about the uh, nerdy stuff, data, whatnot, stocking, things like that. That's who we're talking to this week. When I say we, I mean me, because Brad Hoppy, Muskie Mayhem Tackle, he's driving Chase Gibson to the airport so he can head his self back to West Virginia. So Brad's not available. I mean, he was available, but his road noise was a tad higher than what I cared for it to be. So in an effort to make the episode as good as sounding as we can, I aced Brad out. Brad will return next week, and we got to try to figure out even who we're talking to next week. But lots of guests on our on our list. We just haven't gotten to all of them yet, and we continue to add more to it. Uh, things are starting to settle down a little bit more, so I would anticipate... You know, new guests, fresh guests coming on you know, shortly. But if you're still out chasing muskies and you need gear, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. You know, we're your source for all the gear you need for, well, 2021 season. It's winding down in most cases. Hopefully everybody's getting out and enjoying the last few trips of the year. And if you're in the south, I'm sure you got plenty of time yet. You know, so if you need gear, check out TeamRhinoOutdoors.com. The other thing, too, is we're coming up on... Um, Less than two months to go, I believe, for the Muskie Expos. And we're going to be at four of them this year. So you can check us out there as well. And also, if you need gear, even though Brad and Carrie aren't here, I'll still do their intro for them. You're looking at Muskie Mayhem Tackle. They're the original big-bladed flashaboo bucktails, and you can find all their stuff at muskiemayhemtackle.com. I know I saw Carrie recently post that she's got some new hoodies and t-shirts and things like that so if you're looking for some swag we'll call it for uh, musky mayhem tackle go check out their website other than that i don't have anybody else around here to talk to i don't have a lot of bsing to do i have been able to get out fishing a little bit and put a couple fish in the net so that was cool and uh, with that being said i'm going to go dial up my conversation with jordan weeks all right my guest today is jordan weeks We'll say he's from the Wisconsin DNR, but for the purpose of this conversation, we're just having a general fishing conversation. I have a few topics I want to talk about with Jordan, and we're, we'll start off talking about his season, and then we'll uh, we'll get into some stuff. I know there was some warm water study stuff, some Green Bay stuff, and I don't know, you had a couple other topics. I, I want to know why there's no big fish caught in Green Bay in November. Hopefully, you're going to be able to tell me that uh, that that's false and that there are, and I'm assuming that there are. But anyways, Jordan, hey, I want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule to come on the podcast. I can't remember the last episode we had you on. I know it wasn't this summer. So, you know, like I said, thanks for coming out. And uh, let's talk a little bit about your summer because it sounded like you got to return to Canada at least once, maybe twice, I believe. Yeah, I got to go twice. And hey, thanks for having me on again. This is uh, always a good time chatting with you. Yeah, I always like having you on because it's not like we're talking about... You know, like the X's and O's, you know, we don't talk about which spots to find. Well, we do talk about spots to find muskies a little bit, but we don't talk about, you know, fishing bucktails off, you know, weed beds and, you know, how fast to move baits and whatever. We talk more of the X's and O's parts of it, the stocking stuff. And I think we're going to talk about that today, too, because it sounds like the DNR got back to stocking. But uh, before we get that far, 
you know, how, how was your season this year? Yeah, it was, it was really good. I had uh, a lot of good opportunities to, to catch some fish and, and put about 55 in my boat this year, which is a pretty good number. Of course, I didn't catch all those fish, but I, I still had a individually really good season as well. I got a couple of real big fish, so I'm pretty happy. Yes, I would say 55 in your boat is a very good season. I've done a number very similar to that. I don't remember the exact number. Back in the day, I used to keep really good notes of stuff. And I've found that as I get older, I don't do a very good job of that. I also don't do a very, I don't do a good job of record keeping at all. Like I had a friend of mine, I was out in Green Bay last, uh, last week and a friend of mine, he was asking me, he's like, well, you know, he used to fish out there with me quite a bit and his son's into dirt biking. So he spends all of his time and money, uh, dirt biking now or chasing his kid around to dirt biking. So he doesn't fish, doesn't have a license anymore. Hasn't had one in like 10 years, but him and I used to musky fish out there a lot. And he's like, well, well, why don't you just look back on your notes, you know? Because I don't fish Green Bay that often anymore. I I talk about it a lot, but I don't I do not do it. I used to do it all the time. And he's like, well, look look back on your notes, or what about your waypoints? And I'm like, notes? Waypoints? Like, I haven't looked at any of that stuff from Green Bay in forever. Like, I, I have some notes. He's like, well, where do you think your notes would be? I'm like, I don't know, probably on the shelf by my Tuffy, and that doesn't move ever. So, like, they're probably somewhere somewhere around there. And waypoints, I mean, I've changed locators three times probably since then, and I don't have any waypoints to go off of. It's just, you know, Brad talks about fishing memories all the time. That's all I do when I go out to Green Bay is fish memories. Uh, Yes, I had one season that was, you know, very good, like you had talked about, and I I think the number was somewhere around there. And, man, those seasons are really fun, I got to tell you. Yeah, you don't don't really have to tell me because I'm kind of just kind of reminiscing on the the season myself. Yeah, and it was fortunate, you know, I had – had a lot of good friends with me, some guys that I haven't fished with in a long time. I went out to the St. Lawrence and fished, which was a unique experience with a couple of my egghead doctor friends, Dr. Kevin Kapitinsky and Dr. Derek Crane, along with a couple other buddies, Matt and, and Mike Guinan. We, we had a pretty nice trip out there and caught a couple of real big fish and got to see something that I uh, never thought I'd see. So it was really nice. So the St. Louis River, or did you say St. Louis, St. Louis River? I said St. Lawrence. St. Lawrence River. I'm sorry. I apologize. Yeah. The place of the largest muskies in the world. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It's, um, I think that's probably where, isn't that where Mike Lazarus guides at? Yeah, we, I, we weren't, uh, I don't think anywhere near where he was, but, uh, and, and to, be, to be honest with you, I, I've been sworn to secrecy, so I can't even tell you where I was, but it was in the St. Lawrence, which is, um, you know, well known for, for giant muskies and, I ended up getting a 51 out there, which was the first fish of the trip, which is nice. Uh, big, big fish of the week was a 53 and a half and we had a 52 and another 50. And so it was, it was pretty fun. Yeah. It sounds like you pretty much, if you go out there and you fish with somebody, like they blindfold you and put earplugs in and they just, they don't let you see the light of day. I'm guessing until you get to your spots, it sounds like that's how that works out there. It's kind of like this weird, um, like cult almost. It is. It is. It's, it's exactly like that. Uh, yeah, bad things would happen. I think that there is, they have control over lightning or whatever, because I think if I even thought about the location, I would get struck right now. Right, so. absolutely. Do you think that they have this in bass fishing? Like, is this something that happens? <laughs> no, no, they don't in bass fishing, because God created bass so everyone could catch a fish. Right. They're just not that hard to catch. <laughs> oh, that's funny. Well, that's good. I mean, I'm glad that you had a great season. So hopefully some of the work that the DNR has been doing helps, you know, a lot of people have good seasons 
moving forward. Let's talk a little bit about that. What's the latest on the DNR? I know in 2020, obviously there was, you know, the world went crazy and still half crazy right now, but we didn't do any stocking in Wisconsin. What took place this fall? Yeah. So I guess there should be a little clarity on 2020 in that there were a very small number of fish stocked and and the only fish that did get stocked were from private hatcheries. They were not DNR fish. So yeah, you were correct in your in your assertion, um, but there were a few lakes that did get stocked via private hatcheries in the state. It's a very small number, but this year uh, we were back at it, and we talked a little bit, I believe, in another podcast. I don't remember what number they were, but I do remember this is like my fourth time on. Um, so one of the other three times I was on, we talked about like genetic management units and how the states move towards some of those. And formerly, we had three different genetic stocks of fish that we would raise in our hatcheries. In the Governor Thompson hatchery, we had that for Chippewa fish. In the Art Emke hatchery in Woodruff, we had that for Wisconsin. In the Wild Rose hatchery, we had both Great Lakes strain and also a Southern Wisconsin strain that came out of the Madison chain. This year, we've actually reduced that number, and we're only going to produce three different stocks uh, from here on out to simplify things and maximize our production. The, what, the, the stock that we're dropping is the, the Madison chain fish. So what will happen from here on out, at least our plan is, is to stock Great Lakes fish in all of our southern Wisconsin waters, with uh, waters that are traditionally um, non-musky waters or outside the native range of muskies. So those will all be getting Great Lakes spotted, which will raise that wild rose um, to maximum capacity. Okay, so let me... Let me get a little clarity on that. You say Southern Wisconsin waters, they're all going to be Great Lakes spotted fishes. That's that's what you said? The, yes. The ones, the the lakes in the southern part of the state that are non-native musky waters. So the ones that are outside the Chippewa River drainage or the Wisconsin River drainage, any lake in the Great Lakes drainage or Southern Wisconsin, we, we used to call them uh, universal receptor waters. So these were non-native musky lakes that we had created only through stocking. Those, lake, those lakes will all be getting the spotted, the Great Lakes spotted muskies. So lakes, for an example, would that include like Pewaukee Lake? Correct. So Pewaukee would get Great Lakes spotted muskies. Well, let's see if it got some. I got the list in front of me right here. Pewaukee okay. Lake got, did not get any Great Lakes fish this year. It got upper Wisconsin fish this year. Okay. In future, it would be slated to get them. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. That's interesting. I mean, at it's going to create an interesting dynamic because it'll be certainly really awesome to see how these fish grow. Like, so, yep. so Madison is Madison going to, cause you said this year you, you're going to ditch the Madison strain. Is Madison going to be on that list to get great Lake spotted muskies? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Wow. That's, I mean, that's a, I'd say that's pretty big news, isn't it for Wisconsin? Like that's kind of something that people have been pushing for anyways, haven't they? I think that there's been a lot of discussion revolving around genetic stocks in Wisconsin. I would go that far. I don't think I've heard a lot of people talking about Great Lakes fish specifically, but the reason we did that is, is twofold. Well, first of all, those lakes that we're stocking in the Southern part of the state, traditionally, like I said before, they were not musky waters. So they don't have any genetic legacy of, of fish that were there previously. So we used to call them universal receptors. We don't really use that term anymore. They're just outside the native range. So per our, basically our own rules or our own administrative code, we're allowed to stock whatever genetic strain we'd like. And 
The second part of this is that we wanted to maximize hatchery production. And having multiple stocks in a single hatchery sometimes doesn't accomplish that because say your quota is 10,000 fish and that's a pond and a half or two and a half ponds, it would be more advantageous to have three full ponds than two and a half ponds, right? Yep. So what we're doing is basically having one stock at a hatchery makes us allows us to maximize the number of ponds that we use and the number of fish that goes in. So every pond will be full of fish. That's pretty cool. And like I said, I think that's, I'm assuming the one that everybody talks about is leech lakers all the time. It seems like those are, but I think we can, we can tell is that the Great Lakes fish do really well. I mean, especially in the Great Lakes they do. So it'll be interesting to see how they do in these inland lakes. Right. And that's the only question mark that we don't really know. And we've seen it with some, not in some in Wisconsin, um, but other studies that have looked into different strains of fish, what they found almost always is strains of muskies that are native to a particular area tend to do better in that area than introduced strains. In Lake Wasota was an example that we had a lot of genetic samples in Wisconsin, had leech lake stocked in there for many years. And when they did the genetic analysis, like 2.9% of the fish were of leech lake origin they either did not survive or did not contribute to the sample and, and the sample was significant. So for whatever reason, they didn't, they didn't take there. They didn't survive there. They didn't, they weren't available. And in some of our broodstock lakes for great lakes, spotted fish, we are not quite sure how many fish are in some of those lakes. We're not quite sure how our broodstock lakes are, what status they're at right now. Um, we know we can get as many eggs as we want out of the Fox river but we're not quite sure where our brood brood lakes are at at this point. We're still looking into how those stockings have taken and if they have produced the year classes that we hope that they did. Sure, because I was going to ask you about that because I think it's like uh, Random Lake, Archibald Lake, Anderson Lake. Those are the broodstock lakes that you're speaking of, correct? Yeah, Elkhart, Archibald, Anderson. Uh, Random, I don't believe, is one of them. Pretty sure not. Okay, I could be wrong. I'm not. Maybe it was Elk. Did we? Did you say Elkhart? Maybe Elkhart yeah. was one of them. Yeah, got it. Yep, Elkhart, Anderson, and Archibald. That's it. Those are the three. Yeah, sorry. We we know that those lakes have some of our broodstock fish in them. We just don't know if they'll be if they're at a population level where we could go there and get eggs if we needed to. And that's that's the end goal of those lakes is to have enough adults in there where we could go if we needed to to get eggs for propagation purposes. And I was going to say, and those are also just to give you more genetic diversity within the Great Lakes strain muskies. Right, right. Because we, we have stocked fish from multiple sources of Great Lakes fish in there. And, and Wisconsin's got Great Lakes strain fish from multiple places, including Canada and Lake St. Clair and places like that. That's the goal. We, we want to have good genetic diversity of those Great Lakes fish so they have the best chance of survival. Yeah. Okay, now you might not have an answer to this question, and I hope maybe you do, but so in these new Great Lakes fisheries, we'll call them, are they pit tagging these muskies, or are they just fin clipping them and then putting them in? And I'm only, the reason I, I care is it will be interesting to see growth rates on some of these inland waters compared to Green Bay waters, because I know there's a ton of data, I believe, on the Green Bay stuff, and so it'd be interesting to see. Yeah, that and, and I think that, going forward that will happen to answer your question directly is that doesn't always happen um it kind of depends on what the biologist's goal is for the particular water you know for example if you had you know Pewaukee lake in your it's fairly large so your stocking quota of fish is 2500 
that would be $2,500 for pit tags and then a significant amount of staff time to actually tag those fish before they went in. Unless Ben Heisner, the biologist, wanted to do specific research on those fish, most likely he would not have all those fish pit tagged. We do pit tag juvenile muskies before we stock them in certain situations. We do in our broodstock lakes. Um, we do in research lakes. You know, we stocked 40,000 Great Lakes fish this year. And that not only would that be $40,000 in pit tags, a little bit more, it would be a, a huge amount of staff time to tag that many fish. So it's impossible to tag all those fish, um, but we do in certain situations. I think as a muskie angler, and maybe even from your standpoint, it would be the coolest thing if they pit tagged every single muskie that they put into, you know, into the water. Obviously, there's a financial cost there that we, it's unrealistic, I feel, financially to expect that. Yeah, and that's part of the reason that we kind of, I've actually, I've heard from a number of muskie anglers um, kind of complaining about the state stocking fewer fish than we have in the past. And most of that is a function of budget. I mean, we haven't had a license fee increase for a long time, and that's how our budgets increase. So we've been operating under the same budget at DNR for 15 years or more. And, you know, we all know that things cost more now than they did 15 years ago. Yes. And so trying to raise the same number of fish uh, as we did 15 years ago on the same budget now is impossible to do. Not only that, there's mitigating circumstances with, with some state law that tells us we have to raise X number of walleyes in our hatcheries um, by state law. So that does also take away from our musky production. Right. I understand. Most musky guys are still like the runt of the litter <laughs> in, a, in, in essence. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, we it, it could be worse. Let's just, let's just say that. we The musky guys should be pretty happy, I think. I think things are looking up. I think the outlook is really good for, for stocking into the future. We're getting better at it. We're refining our techniques. We're getting better at determining, you know, individual lake stocking quotas and getting the most bang for our buck. And while not every lake that traditionally was stocked will be able to be stocked in the future, I think that we are doing it smarter and we're doing it better. Obviously, as musky anglers, we want more, more, more. That's obviously what we want. I, I realize that that's not exactly the way things work. I also realized that the majority of the anglers in Wisconsin are not fishing for muskies, and I feel that's probably the case with a, mu a bunch of other states. So I don't want to make it sound like I feel like the DNR is doing a poor job because, you know, quite honestly, I, f I feel the, the opposite. I might be in the minority, but I do think that there's a lot of opportunities within Wisconsin to catch muskies, and I think that's obviously a great thing for our sport. And, you know, if we stopped stocking muskies, those would you know, we would, no we would notice the uh, work that was missed. Yeah. I think that's most of the, most of the people we're hearing from are, you know, in certain lakes don't get stocked for a certain number of years. And I think a lot of it might not necessarily come from the fishing aspect. Some of it certainly does, but some of it just comes from the ability for them to look up the stocking data. And then they see that their favorite water hasn't been stocked for a few years. And automatically they think that well, those muskies are gone what it's really important to remember is these fish live a really long time. So just because the last five years, your favorite lake didn't get stocked, it doesn't mean that that population as a whole has suffered at this point. If you had a time where it was 15 years or it didn't get stocked, you'd certainly would see a decline, you know, when you get into year 10, 11, 12, 
of that 15 years. But, you know, these fish, it's not like you stock fish and automatically see them three years later or they're in your, your you know, in your net, right? It, these fish take a long time to grow. Um, they live a long time. So these populations are, are a little more stable than, than a lot of musky anglers realize. So a drop in stocking doesn't necessarily mean a drop in fishing right away. It does take a little bit of while, a little while to a uh, little lag behind that curve. You know well, what I mean? Well, I think we can look back to the Green Bay muskie fishery for that. I how many years did they miss? I thought it was like five with VHS, but I could be wrong. I'm I'm clear. I'm not an expert at anything with that, but I I thought they missed like five year classes. Is that right or not? Man, I, I don't know the answer off the top of my head for that, Jeff. My memory is nowhere near that good to recall uh, with all the numbers that are stuck in my head. Sure. Um, so I, I'll have, I would have to get back to you on that. But, yeah, there was a time where, where stocking um, was was not done on Green Bay, and, and there was a lag that you did see. And, and those fish are a little bit different at that time. When that happened, those fish were not very long-lived. Generally, if you saw a muskie at that time when, when that VHS kind of hit, if you had a 15 year old muskie there at that time, that would be a really old fish. Mm-hmm. Um, and now we're seeing fish. That population has got to a point where those fish don't grow quite as fast. They still grow very fast because it's a very productive system, but they do end up living quite a bit longer than uh, they historically did or did at the beginning or 15, 20 years ago, you know? Okay. So I don't know if we covered stocking all the way, but the one thing you talked about was budget and how license sales drive your budget. Were license sales still through the roof for 2021? They were up, not from 2020. They were up from normal, um, but it wasn't as significant. So we sold, I want to say, at the end of the day, somewhere just over 10, 10% more licenses or so in 2020 than we had previously. I might be wrong on that number, so don't quote me on it, but it's, it, we, we did sell more licenses in 2020. Um, which does give us some additional funding. But when you're talking about $20 licenses going towards, you know, the, the massive budget that the hatchery system has to create these fish, you know, we give you kind of a little more perspective. We, we stocked about 83,000 muskies in Wisconsin this last year. Um, I guess not all of those were DNR fish. The grand majority were, though. Let's just say 82,000 or let's just say 80,000 to be, to be simple. Each one of those fish was averaging, let's just say, 12 inches-ish, 11, 12 inches. They're about a buck an inch. So just for those end product of muskies, that's quite a bit of money. I'm not going to do the math, but you could do it if you'd like. I'm I'm trying to think on the math. You said 80,000 muskies, and if they're about 12 bucks, it's still about a million dollars, I think, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. If we usually sell about a million fishing licenses in the state of Wisconsin on average, resident and non-resident. So, you know, that would be $1 from everybody's license going directly to muskies. That's pretty, that, that's a lot. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like of your $20 fishing license, that has to fund the whole program, not just muskies. Oh yeah. I get that. Totally. Okay. So you talked about, you hadn't increased license fees i believe it was in like 15 years is there ever discussion about increasing a fee because again i could be in the minority but i feel like the wisconsin fishing license and i'm sure it's the same way everywhere for resident fishing license is far too cheap in my opinion like it's i think if you get a husband and wife it's less than 40 bucks if i'm not mistaken 
Yeah, I'm pretty sure it is. I, you know, I haven't bought a husband and wife in a while. I, I can tell you that, you know, our fishing license is very expensive. You get a lot of value. Excuse me. Did I say expensive or inexpensive? You said expensive. Yeah, sure. you said expensive. <laughs> it's, it's not expensive. It's, you know, you get a lot of bang for your buck for $20. You know, you can't really get anything for $20. You can't hardly go to McDonald's for $20 anymore. You know, and you can, you can, for $20 in Wisconsin, you can fish every single day of the year. You can take home, you know, multiple species of fish to eat as food. It's about the cheapest food you could buy. Um, you know, so it's, it's a super great value. There's always discussions about in, you know, increasing license fees, but that typically gets into the political realm where some folks view that as, as taboo. I'm not sure how most anglers feel about it. I think the ones that, that think about it real hard and kind of realize what they get for their $20, probably it would be in agreement to, to raise it. But I think the overwhelming majority, when they hear, you know, DNR wants more, more of your money, they usually say, uh, go fly a kite. Yeah, I, I understand. But like you said, that drives the entire, everything that the DNR does as far as putting fish in the water is that drives all of it. And top of all, anything else to do with the money. And I just feel like 20 bucks per person or whatever. Like I said, a husband and wife might even be less. It might be $30 for all I know. I don't know. All I know is that when I pay it, I'm like, I can't believe this is all it costs because everything is freaking expensive. I mean, yeah, I'm, you're right. I, I, ideally what, it, what would be great is if there was some sort of progression, right. That was related to maybe the value of the dollar or inflation or something. Right. So that our budgets would be, you know, commensurate to what the dollar is now compared to what it was before, you know? So if it went up a nickel every year or, you know, in, in 20 years, it would go up a dollar. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Something I, like that. I, I, I think a nickel is, is too cheap, but personally, you know, I go to Canada and buy their license. I buy the full license every year, even though I don't bring fish home. I do it because it's a contribution to their natural resources management, you know, buy their license every year. And, I don't bat an eye, you know, I, I think licenses are, are super cheap pretty much everywhere you go. Yeah. When you said a nickel, I was thinking like double, <laughs> <laughs> like, of, of course there's a whole bunch of people that are, that are like listening right now and they're probably yelling and like thinking I'm an idiot, which I am. I mean, I'm not going to disagree with that, but in this instance, like I said, it still just seems cheap, especially when you're talking, you know, the cost of a typical musky bait is probably, I mean, maybe I don't, I bet you it's probably your average musky bait is probably more expensive than 20 bucks. And so for the I cost of you're right. one musky lure, you know, it's, you're, you're talking, you know, to, you get to go fishing for the entire year. So it seems reasonable. I know what I need to pay for like commercial insurance on one of my trucks and like, I'm, I don't do anything more commercial with it than, you know, your average person. And that's ridiculous. And so I look at compared to a lot of things. I mean, it, even if you just compare it to going to a movie, I think a movie ticket, if I'm not mistaken, is like 12 bucks probably. I couldn't tell you the last time I was at a movie, well, partially because I think movies were shut down for like two years. But um, <laughs> aside from that, I just think that it's, you know, like I said, it's just ridiculously cheap. So uh, kind of along that line, um, but not necessarily directly. And I, again, you may or may not have any discussions or in, any knowledge on it, but so there, I believe it was Pennsylvania. They recently, I think within the past two seasons, they've done a musky stamp out there. And I'm assuming you need to have one in order to harvest one. And 
the idea behind it was all the money would go directly to, you know, musky, whatever, whatever they're going to do with them. Maybe they're going to buy pit tags. Maybe they're going to stock more fish, whatever. It goes, it goes back directly to impact musky fishing. Is that ever something that Wisconsin would consider doing? We have considered it. And I hope everyone listens to the next words that come out of my mouth. It's definitely something that we don't want to do. Um, and the reason for that, you can just look at our trout stand. When you have a dedicated fund for a particular species, that's all the money they get. So if muskie anglers want to fund the muskie program only with muskie angler money, because nobody who, you know, people who don't fish for muskies aren't buying a muskie stamp, the, the amount of money that mus- the muskie program would have going forward would be, and this is a guess, but one thirty second of what it currently is. Okay. You see what I'm saying? Yeah. I, so I, like I, right, right yeah. now, the muskie program gets a cut of all of the money within the department because within fisheries, excuse me, within fisheries, um, because it's important, right? But when you dedicate a stamp to a particular species, then uh, mostly from the legislative portion of the state government, they say, oh, you don't need any more money then. You have to use that specifically for muskies, and that's all you get. The other part of that is, and we, we've talked about it exclusively, or extensively, excuse me. I'm, I don't, I'm not great with words tonight. I uh, apologize. But, uh, well, it's later than it was supposed to be. <laughs> <laughs> we, you know, sometimes with a stamp or, or a, a something like that, it gives people the... I want to fill my tag syndrome. So like in places where they do have like Michigan, where they had mandatory registration, I think they, they saw a little bit of that. Hey, I got this thing. I paid for it. I need to fill it, which then caused potentially um, more fish to be harvested than historically would have been. Another reason why I don't believe that it would be something that that would be great. Now, again, this is my personal opinion. It's not a department, you know, stance. We, we have it talked about the idea and it, it almost always ends up in the same place. All right. I wasn't sure if it would be like a bonus deal. I didn't realize that's how it worked legislatively that if it, if you had a stamp, that was the money that you got and that was all you got. Cause that's what has happened in the past. It's not a guarantee that that would be the case, but that is what's happened in the past. So like when you charge a fee, that's what you use the fee for and you don't get any extra money. Right. That's yeah. what happened with the trout stamp. So, All right. Well, then this sounds like a terrible idea. We don't need to talk about it's it. It's a horrible idea, Jeff. You should probably never mention it again. All right. Well, I was just looking for some potential for some <laughs> bonus money. That's all. Yeah. You know, I think that that's always the, the question. And what I've told multiple people and multiple different musky clubs is, you know, the best thing the musky community can do is encourage folks to go fishing in Wisconsin for muskies or whatever fish just to buy a fishing license. And also for these individual clubs, if they're really interested in helping, they can help fund some of our, our propagation programs so that we can buy more forage so you can grow these fish bigger so they survive better when we stock them out. That's the thing that I keep telling everybody. Uh, another good way that these clubs and people with money want to help fund things is to buy equipment for us, pit tags, pit tag readers. That's a super valuable tool that we have. It's going to provide us in the next 10 years with some information that we wouldn't have been able to get without pit tags so it's going to be really uh imperative that we you know have that program you know in good standing and and uh be robust going forward 
so those are great ways that that individuals or clubs can can help do it and it's it's no different than uh funding some sort of research project or a grad student although most people think funding a grad student's a great idea until they hear how much it costs to fund a grad student so <laughs> Um, okay, so let's talk about if an individual wants to try to make a donation to that, how do they go about doing that? I would say the easiest way to do that would be to contact me and you in the Muskie team. As the Muskie team leader, I have a, it's called a gift account. And what we can do is we can accept donations uh, from individuals or groups or organizations and put it in this account. It's basically like a checking account. Um, the only downfall is that this checking account doesn't gain interest like a personal one would. Um, but it goes into account and then I can buy equipment or we can have the hatchery folks take out of that budget to buy minnows or equipment or whatever we need to buy. Sure. Okay. So th- that's the easiest way to do it. Um, you can also work with your local biologist. If you have a, you know, if you want to work in the Hayward area, call Max Walter and, and he, he most likely has a gift account that he can uh, put those donations in for use in, in his management area. Um, you know, if, if you were to donate to the Muskie team and specify, hey, I want this to go to propagation, that's where it would go. And, and then we can show you the receipts on that uh, when we purchase items or whatever. Sure. I know you can do it, you know, if you're part of a Muskie club. I know a lot of those Muskie clubs already do this kind of stuff. I've talked about it previously on other podcasts, but I mean, I donate to a handful of clubs to help with st- stocking or whatever. I always tell them, you know, like, hey, don't use this for just random junk. I don't care. I don't want to say I don't care about that, but I don't care about that. I care about muskies going in the water. I care about, you know, pit tags. I care about that kind of stuff. And so I've I've definitely made donations that way. And, you know, just depending on what club you're working on, I know I've, I've done it for, I don't know, like I said, a handful of clubs throughout wisconsin and i've done a couple in other states as well so um yeah that, you know i i always every chance i get i want to thank the the muskie clubs that have helped donate to the state and and you know other projects you know through the course of time in fact my graduate work to get my master's degree was um was partially funded by muskie clubs so they do a really good job of of helping us out when we need to um last year or the year before i can't remember now they're all kind of going together a few clubs up in the Wausau area actually bought us a shocking boat for the biologist and the technician in Wausau. So that's not an insignificant purchase. That was a very expensive purchase and, and they funded a lot of that. So that was really awesome. Something that we wouldn't have normally been able to do in our budget. So I, I want to thank those clubs for all the help. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a lot of different ways that are that are, you know, musky fisheries are growing throughout Wisconsin. And like you said, the clubs do a very good job regardless of the you know the bickering and the whatever online about you know how big a 55 is whether it's actually 54 and a quarter or whatever it would be you know the musky community is filled with a ton of passionate anglers that all want we all want to see them you know the musky fisheries improve and so those clubs help out a, a tremendous amount yeah i would add that the, the folks that i work with want the same thing you know because a lot of times we get painted that we don't want to make things better we were in the way of, of doing certain things. But the only difference between that is we have to follow certain rules <laughs> to do, to, you know, to stock fish and whatnot. Um, the folks that I work with are the 40 biologists across the state and the technicians that work with them and the supervisors. 
we, we all want musky fishing and, and all fishing to be better. So yeah, we're, we're all on the same team. We just don't operate under the same rules, you know? Right. Yep. I totally understand. And, uh, and I hope I haven't given that impression because obviously uh, I've said it before. I'm a big fan of what they do. If I, quite honestly, if I wasn't a big fan of the DNR, I really doubt I would have had you on four times. <laughs> so, <laughs> Yeah. Or you had to be super bored or, or really scraping the bottom of the barrel. Jeff. Actually, you know, to tell you the truth, I, I enjoy these episodes quite a bit because like, I, I like the X's and O's type stuff, like, or the, or the behind the scenes and the stocking data and all that stuff. Like when I got into musky fishing, I was super nerdy. Like, I, you know, like we had a conversation about stocking you know, prior to recording here, like and I would, I was like looking through new lakes cause I was looking for stocking data and I'm like, holy cow, look at how many muskies this lake got and how, you know, this one and this one, you know, I was doing that stuff all the time. And cause when I first started musky fishing, like a buddy of mine, we would literally pick a new lake like every other weekend or every weekend we'd look at stocking data. We'd look at the lake, lake map and be like, okay, yeah, there should be some fish there. You know, and I did it all the time and it's still really cool to me. I mean, like I said, I was texting you today about a certain lake looking for stocking data because I couldn't find any online. Yeah, you know, I think that's a, I want to say that's probably a stage two musky fisherman thing, right? Because there's like four stages of musky fishing. The first one is just you want to catch one. Mm -hmm. And the second one is you just want to catch a whole bunch. And I think that the stage where we kind of start looking at this and maybe nerd out a little bit, say, okay, well, I want to catch a whole bunch. Let's go find where they put a whole bunch. Um, and then stage three would be, I just want to catch a really big one or a couple big ones. And then maybe stage four is I still want to catch big ones, but I'm just happy to be here. <laughs> kind of like, yeah, I'm still looking for a big one in stage three, but I'm also into stage four. Like I, you know, I have tons of buddies that are, they just want to go fish for the biggest one they can. And sometimes I just want to get out of the water, like, and just go fishing. Like I don't really yeah, this lake might not have the biggest muskies ever, but there's a good chance I can catch one, and that's still fun to me. Yeah, hey, there's no judgment from me, man. You can be in as many stages as you want. You can be in different stages during the same day as far as I'm concerned, man. Yeah. We're, uh, it's, that's the cool thing about this. Everybody's got their own their own ideas, their own goals, but I definitely know how it goes. You know, there was a time in my life where I, I kept really good, like I said in the beginning, I kept really good notes on how many we caught moonrise, moonset, what the weather was like, what the wind was doing, all this stuff, the bait that we caught it. If we were trolling in, I knew how far back it was and yeah, I knew the speed and everything. I knew all that stuff and I had a ton of information and you know, like I said, I, like if at any given point of the season, somebody's like, how many fish you got in your boat? I knew, like I always knew, but now, now I don't, I don't even, like I said, I don't even hardly use waypoints anymore. I just go out there and go fishing. Like whatever happens, happens that day. I mean, it's probably not the best approach. I wouldn't recommend it, but it, this is where I'm at sometimes. Yeah, I, I don't, you know, maybe it isn't the most efficient approach, Jeff, but if it works for you, then, hey, more power to you, man, because, you know, you got that knowledge in your in your head, and sometimes autopilot works just as good as a, as a book full of notes. Yep, and uh, just, you know, I don't have the time that I did once to go pouring through a bunch of notes, you know, and look at all this stuff. I mean, I used to... I used to study lake maps on my table. This is when we actually had lake maps and you buy them and unfold them and everything. <laughs> like I got a whole, I had a whole glove compartment full of them in my ranger. And like, if we went to a different lake or went somewhere, you know, whatever, we'd pull out a lake map. And, uh, I used to study that stuff and I'd look for little points and all this other, this other stuff. And now I don't even, now they made it so easy. You don't need to do it anymore. Like you can literally just, you know, pull up your map on your 
on your GPS and like those maps are fairly accurate. So it's like, you know, you don't need to look for, you don't need to do that homework. They made it kind of simple now, but it was fun. I liked it. I mean, it was, it was a different time in that now all, all I care about is just going fishing with my daughter and hope that she catches something. Yeah, that's, that's a great, that's a great uh, experience. Bagger kids succeed. I love that. Yeah. Like my, it's, it's weird. Cause my daughter's made this changeover where she didn't want to troll ever. And now she wants to troll. And I'm like, I think it's just cause you get every single rip whenever we go trolling. So like you want to go fishing all the time now and troll because you get everything. Like if you're casting smart like your mom, <laughs> well, it's not, clearly not her dad. Um, <laughs> she's got a smart attitude like her dad, but that's it. Uh, <laughs> the rest is all mom. But anyways, you know, like it's just one of those things where if we, if we cast, it's all fair game. Like if, if I catch one, that's it. Like I'm catching it. You're putting it in the net. And if, right. we, if we go trolling, I'm like, all right, just so you know, every rip's yours, you know? <laughs> yeah. That's how it should be though. Yeah. You've caught enough. Yeah. I'm, I mean, like I said, I would have, I would rather have it that way. I mean, I, there's no other way I'd, I'd rather have it. I mean, the other last week, I think it was, it was a nice day out and I went fishing and got a muskie and I almost felt bad that she wasn't with me because she's been asking to go and we just had, the weather's just been crappy and things like that on the weekend. So, or it's been too warm. I don't really particularly love warm and trolling. Like it's, it, it's whatever, like that's for a different story, but or a different day. But anyways, so uh, overly warm falls like we just had, I'm not particularly in love with as far as the trolling aspect goes. Um, but anyways, okay. So moving on, uh, let's see here. Where were we going to go with this conversation? Well, we, uh, one of the other items that we could talk about unless we're getting too long is, um, some of the hot water study that's going on. Um, we did our, we did a study in Wisconsin and then kind of we're partnering with uh, a few other studies that kind of have some very preliminary results. All right. Well, let's talk a little bit about hot water. I know that, uh, Chase Gibson, we've had on a few times. I know he's been directly involved in that down there as well. And eventually he'll come back on, I believe, and give us some update on that too. But why don't you give me a little bit of update on what you're learning from it? And then I do, I do have a few other topics or another topic I want to talk to you about yet before we go. So why don't you, why don't you let me know about hot water? Well, yeah, so Chase has been working with Peter Jenkins on Stonewall Jackson, which is pretty cool. Yep. Um, but the part that I'll start out chatting about is just Wisconsin's portion of this. So I don't know. I don't remember when this idea came about. I think it was pre-COVID. I was talking with Dr. Derek Crane, who's a personal friend of mine, but also works on some of this hot water stuff from Coastal Carolina University. And he's like, hey, is there any way you guys could get a pond in the state and, and see if you could replicate what we're doing in uh West Virginia. And I said, well, let's see what we can do. So I applied for a grant, a Becker grant, and I started soliciting some funds from the the Muskie clubs and I was successful in getting a Becker grant and also donations from Blackhawk chapter, uh, no, excuse me, Blackhawk Muskies club, Hayward area properties, uh, owners association, uh, headwaters, Muskies Inc, title town, Muskies Inc, and the Hayward Muskies Inc to do the work because there was no money in the DNR budget to do this. I had to, I had to find all the money myself and, and thanks to all those groups that helped us out do it, uh, to perform this. So in April, we grabbed 20 muskies from four different waters in Southern Wisconsin. And we took them to the Richard Bong recreation area down by Kansasville and put them in a 0.6 acre pond there. It's about 10 feet deep. And our 
goal was to use the protocols that they're using from West Virginia University with Dr. Kyle Hartman and Taylor Booth. We wanted to catch half of the fish total. We wanted to catch, so we wanted to catch 10 fish of the 20. 10 were going to be our controls, meaning fish that weren't angled. They just were in the pond as control fish. We wanted to catch five fish from 75 to 80 degree water temperature, surface water temperature, and then five fish from 80 to 80 or over 80. And we were fairly successful at doing that. We had a few department personnel angling for some fish to see how it would go the first day, which was like June 5th or 6th. I can't remember exactly, but we caught three fish uh, in about 15 minutes. So that was uh, very successful. And then the following day, I met a bunch of youth from one of the local musky clubs. I want to say it's the one by Pewaukee. I don't remember what the name, and I apologize for not remembering the name of the musky club, but um, there were about six kids who came out, and we needed to catch three more fish. And so the first fish we caught was a young lady, never caught a musky before. It was really awesome. She caught it on top water, uh, Dr. Evil. And it happened to be one of the fish we caught the previous day. So that didn't add to our sample. And so we were fortunate enough to let two more youth catch muskies to get to our five total. Um, we were in that lower temperature window. And we had another young man who caught his first muskie. And then the last youth that caught a fish had his dad takes a muskie fishing. So he caught a, a, quite a few, I think. Um, and so he caught the third one for the day. And then being our staff basically continued to angle for those fish the rest of the year. Uh, we ended up with seven total muskies caught in, in all temperatures in the pond. Only one of those fish died, and it was actually one of the fish that we caught in the lower temperature window. But here's the kicker. It didn't die un until it was a month later. So that fish was caught uh, on, on the 5th of June, and we found it dead on the 5th of July. So I'm not sure you could say that's directly related to angling. The other interesting finding that we had is we had four other muskies that were not caught that died. All those fish were found when the water temperatures were warm and they had not been angled. So I want to make that clear. We had seven total catches, uh, five mortalities. Only one of those fish was an angled fish. So we had very low mortality. Um, but the other thing I will tell you is when the water got really warm, when it got over 80, it was almost impossible to catch the fish. I know that's one of the things that I've said to you in, in, in the past talking on this topic is my assertion of, of musky biology and how they behave. And it might even be the reason that the old adage of, you know, muskies lose their teeth in August, where that came from. Because when the water gets hot, it was really hard to catch those fish. That's interesting. But we're talking 0.6 acre pond, 10 feet deep. I mean, I got. I would have to assume that those water temperatures can get pretty warm in that pond. Yeah, we had temperature loggers um, spread two foot apart from top to bottom in that pond, and I would. I can tell you that our surface temperatures did swing dramatically during the course of a day. Like we've had, we had temperatures in the upper eighties, but I I can also tell you from those temperature loggers that there were always temperatures below below eighty degrees in that pond. There was always a place for those fish to get. Okay. And that'll be, that'll be something to remember as we go forward. So the, the pond study that they were doing out of West Virginia with Taylor Booth, the grad student and Dr. Kyle Hartman 
And again, I want to stress, these are preliminary results. Um, just kind of a cliff notes version that they gave me the other day when we were chatting. They found about 40% mortality at water temperatures over 75 degrees. But the caveat was that it seemed to be the mortalities occurred when they caught a fish in warm water after the water was warm for several days beforehand. So if it was above 80, 80 some degrees for four days consecutive and they caught a muskie, that fish was more likely to die than a fish that was caught as the water temperature was coming up and over 80. So if it was 75 for a week and the water temperature spiked and they caught it at 83, as the water was going up, that fish most likely would not die. But the fish that they caught after several days of really hot temperatures, if they caught one, it had a higher probability of death. They also indicated that it was very hard to catch fish when the water was hot. They also indicated that total handling time seemed to be a very important part of mortality. When you had water temperatures over about 82-ish degrees and handled fish for more than three minutes, most of those fish perished. So three minutes to me is a really long time to handle a muskie. You either have to be have a fish that's hooked really deeply or in an inconvenient location uh, and then take a lot of extra time to take pictures and, and play around with that fish to get over three minutes, in my opinion. Yeah, I would agree with that. I do think, though, you know, I don't know how to approach this, maybe. The one, the one thing about getting good at unhooking muskies is you need to unhook muskies, much like everything else, much like catching them or anything else that you do. The more you do it, the better you get at it. So... Unfortunately, every one of us muskie anglers probably has to go through that learning curve at some point. I would assume three minutes, I agree, is a long time. But what do you suppose the average new muskie angler, I mean, how long do you think it takes them? It probably takes them that long, don't you think? I would guess a a relatively new muskie angler is probably three to five minutes. But the key thing to remember here is that's not all the time that that increases mortality. It was only when the water temperatures were real warm, like over 82, right? Mm-hmm. So, so it's not like, you know, you catch a fish in May, you know, and the water temperature is 62 and you handle that fish for even 10 minutes, that doesn't necessarily mean it's going to die. You know, they're, they, they're a little more resilient at those temperatures. So it's not as big a deal, but they did find preliminary results of this said that might have been they haven't run all the data, so that might be something that comes out of this. But stay tuned because this will be published, and as soon as it is published, I'll I'll cover it in Musky Hunter, so everybody can see what the the peer reviewed product ends up. There were two other components, which I'm sure Chase Gibson talked about the Stonewall Jackson Reservoir stuff. They had very low mortality, but those fish tended to come out of relatively cool water um, near the thermocline. They were in an area where they felt, you know, they were comfortable, 73-ish degree water. And then they, when they were caught, they'd bring, they'd be, you know, subject to some warmer temperatures. And they only had a couple mortalities out of 19 fish this last season. So generally very low mortality when they had that, that cooler area that the fish were occupying when they were hooked. Um, One of the mortalities was a crappie angler caught in 80 degree water, but fought it for 15 minutes or something. Um, not sure you can chalk that up to hooking mortality, but it did die. And then the other one actually chase caught. So, um, that one had, had some in, uh, really warm water, 83. 
And then the third kind of component of this is uh, from Coastal Carolina University with Dr. Derek Crane and Corey Bauerlein, the grad student. Um, he's had a couple summers of, of fishing for muskies on the James River. His quote when I talked to him was, fishing in hot water sucks. A lot of casts for not a lot of hook sets uh, is, is kind of the, the backstory behind that. But um, they found that four of 12 angled muskies died, so about 33%. So, you know, they had a lot of fish that they had locations on. So they had these fish radio tags. So they knew right where they were and they still couldn't catch them when the water was really warm. Very rarely get one to, to bite your bait. And a lot of times it was with live bait or, or some real unconventional method. They did do some other calculations. They calculated some natural mortality at about 8%, which is something, which is a number we don't usually have. And then hooking mortality is about 5 to 8%. So if they had, 33% mortality minus the regular angling hooking mortality of 5% or 8%. That would be about 25% of the fish die in the warm water compared to, you know, about 8%. So the numbers of fish that appear, and this is again, preliminary to be dying during these warm water periods is, is quite a bit lower than I think most people thought, or at least some of the, uh, some of the propaganda that's been out there talking about, yeah, every every one of these fish die um, when they're caught. Doesn't seem to be the case. Not 100% sure yet, but I think that uh, this does kind of get at get at that answer a little bit better. Obviously, even 40% mortality would be something that probably is on an individual fish that seems high, uh, most likely on a population level because so few fish bite or appear to bite when it's warm, probably doesn't impact the population as a whole, especially on stock populations. I guess what you can kind of take from it is your angling hours are going to take longer to catch one in warmer water. So you should probably go bass fishing. Yeah, that's interesting. That seems to be the case. I know that was the case with our angling hours on our pond study. It took, you know, I mean, we only caught one fish in that warm upper temperature window and it took many hours of angling to catch it. Um, but the question that I would have for you then, Jeff, is is how do we know that these the same phenomenon wouldn't occur with bass or just we don't care about bass? <laughs> well, I didn't want to say it. <laughs> <laughs> so, like, yeah, that's the thing I hear all the time is like, well, it's too hot to musky fish. Let's go catch some bass. And, and I, I guess if we don't have any data that suggests that it's any better for bass. I mean, you right. Yeah, you bring up a very strong argument. I mean, there is that. So, you know, but again, I'll, I'll still go back to, and, and I've kind of been on that, you know, uh, kind of on record as, as a little bit skeptical of, of, you know, all the muskies die when it's hot. And that's not a big secret. I, I'm not saying none of them die. I'm just saying they don't all die. But, but I think considering other fish too, and how they react at the same temperatures is, is worth thinking about as far as this goes. And, and, you know, I think we still, like any good researcher, I think we need to look at this even more kind of hone in on on what the actual drivers are and what impacts it might have to certain populations I, mean, I don't think it's reasonable to to close a season per se especially when this might not have a population level effect but i guess that's what we need to to look into more you know i could be wrong so to get off topic onto your bass topic are you aware of any studies that have been done on bass in hot water or do the do they just not care? Well, I, I haven't, I don't think they've done any specific with water temperature studies, but I know that there's been studies around 
revolving around tournaments. So I, I will admit that I'm not in as in tune to the to the bass literature as I am to the musky literature because I just don't care about bass. Um, I mean, don't get me wrong. I love to catch a big old smallmouth every now and then, but it's not my passion. But I know that uh, most of the bass and most of our systems have a a virus that that bass have. It's called largemouth bass virus, and and when you couple largemouth bass virus with warm water temperatures and stress, it's lethal to to most bass. And this pertains a little bit more to largemouth bass than it does to smallmouth bass. But you can, you know, if you're interested in, in the bass as, aspect of this, you can look up, you could Google some of these studies that, that talk about tournament mortality. And, and unfortunately, it's not a clear-cut case. It's probably just like this musky case is, is. You know, you see some studies that say there was very little mortality, even though waters were warm and they have large small bass virus and they caught a bunch and we had hardly any fish die. And then there's others that are like, they all died or, you know, maybe not all, but they had significant mortality. So it's kind of all over the board. So it's really difficult to, to, you know, have one concrete answer in any of this stuff because, you know, we have drastically different waters, drastically different conditions. You know, everything's different on every experiment. Sure. Well, I mean, I guess then it's going to go back to this. You're going to have to, it's going to make Carrie kind of happy because then it sounds like when the water's warm, you should just go pan fishing because. Yeah, because you're going to eat them anyway, I was gonna say, right? You're going to eat them anyway, so who really cares? Right, I would say go walleye fishing because we all know every single walleye that gets caught that's legal dies. Um, there is a very good chance of that. Yes, it's not the muskies that are eating them; it's everybody keeps every single walleye, and they don't keep any bass. I mean, you're not you're not wrong. <laughs> that might be the, the most confident thing I've said all night. <laughs> I've seen, I, you know, I've seen live well full of, of live well full of fish on Green Bay, walleye on Green Bay all season long and you know nobody seems to worry about that i mean that's not a infinite resource <laughs> yeah i mean I, I guess we have to look back if you if you want to go down that rabbit hole i i think that you know most of our regulations are set fairly you know fairly well so that we don't overfish these these situations and a lot of times what happens is if we do if anglers are good enough to overfish in a certain spot then Eventually, they'll go back and not have success, so then they'll go somewhere else, and those populations will then repopulate with the lack of pressure after a while, and some seem to be immune when you're talking about these big systems like Green Bay and the Great Lakes. That walleye fishery is, is probably fairly immune to angling with the regulations that we have set up and with sure. the resource that's there, but you know, I, I say fairly not guaranteed that they're immune to angling. Yeah. Well, I mean, whatever. I, don't, I honestly don't care enough about it. I care about muskies specifically. So if people want to eat walleyes and go out there day after day after day and take their limit of walleyes and whatever, I haven't, I didn't catch a single walleye this year, nor did I spend any time trying. So, you know, all I care about is muskies. That's pretty much it. So however they want to go about doing it, that's fine. I mean, like I said, you're not going to, you're not going to write a rule that's going to work perfectly everywhere. I mean, and then, if you have specific rules for every single specific lake, it just gets con- too confusing with everybody, and so it's just a problem. Yeah, I mean, ideally, from a fisheries biologist perspective, we we should be managing every single individual lake individually. Um, that would give us the the best fisheries all around in each particular body of water. Um, we probably have the capacity to do that fairly well. 
However, you are correct. Nobody wants to <laughs> just see that regulation book, right? Nobody wants to read that regulation book when you have, you know, 15,000 lakes. You'd have to have regulations for all 15,000. People don't read the regulations now. So, <laughs> <laughs> you know, like, I can't tell you how many times I've been on, like, I'm on this Mississippi River Facebook group. They talk about fishing on the river and, you know, how many questions are, what's the size limit for this? And it, it infuriates me because I just want to hammer out in all caps, read the damn regulation. Yep. You know, nobody, nobody tell them, make them read the regulations, but somebody inevitably tells them. And, and a lot of times it's wrong. <laughs> I just shake my head and sigh. That's funny. All right. Reading well, it. It's a skill we need. Yeah, I agree. <laughs> I see it all the time. I, I guess on a, um, you know, a more comical note is, or less serious note would be that I guess it was, we must not have had like ridiculously warm water temperatures for too long this season because you didn't make the rounds on every single podcast talking about warm water. So that had to made you happy, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think I've, I've pretty much said all that I can say about that. You know, these, these research projects will be the next, the next China chapter in that, in that saga. I think that, um, I, I was thankful I didn't have to go on all of them and, and talk about that same stuff again. I, I would have to recycle things. So I, I, I did kind of, pull back from doing a little bit of that this year though so yes nice to be on with you though jeff well i certainly appreciate it so okay i'm gonna let you go soon we're um you know we're pushing that one hour long mark and i appreciate your time but one thing we talked about briefly off air or before we recorded was what happens to green bay muskies in november so i saw it again recently um i for whatever reason i can't think of the gentleman's name ben knutson i believe is hopefully i can i pronounce it right he caught another giant muskie on malax and malax is famous for giant muskies in november i think we've seen it year after year after year just these gigantic specimens of muskies people talking about fishing for days and days and days potentially even weeks to catch one and then they catch one and it's mammoth now I don't know that you'll have the answer, and we didn't get anywhere specifically before, but like, what happens to Green Bay muskies in November? I was texting one of my friends who's a guide, Kevin Pischke, is a guide on Green Bay. Last week, I was out on Green Bay. I got a 38 or whatever. I didn't measure it. I'm guessing it was 38. Fat. Looked like a Green Bay muskie. Very solid specimen. Nowhere near the giant muskies that you see in August and September, or even in May, if the weather temperature you know is correct. So those muskies, obviously, because the DNR nets them in the river in May, the muskies obviously end up there at some point. Where are they in November? God, if I had that, I'd probably be a guide on Green Bay, Jeff. Yeah, I would certainly think. I mean, but, you it's know, I... not like there isn't some angling pressure. Now, I, I will tell you, I feel that angling pressure on Green Bay is at its lowest point in November. But... It's still, well, I shouldn't say that. It's at its lowest point from when they start catching him in July, late July to, to November. It's at its lowest point in November. Obviously, there, you know, some people picking up a bow, much like yourself. They go, they, mm -hmm. sh they shoot deer, go hunting, do whatever. So I understand part of it. But you just never hear of that 55 by 28 unreal green bay specimen in november and i wish i could figure it out 
I'm sure I'm going to get an email now. Somebody's going to say, well, you, I just caught one last week and that's awesome. I'm, I mean, I w- would like to hear about it, but you know, you, like I said, you always hear about some of those just giant places or, you know, Malax is like the one. And you would certainly think that Green Bay would have those same type of specimens showing up in November. Somebody would be catching them somewhere. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously, you know, a 58-inch muskie or 55-inch muskie doesn't just get 55 in November, right? That fish was most likely 55 for quite a while, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Right. So my my thoughts on this is, you know, Malax in in November there's anglers who kind of have these these fish are more predictable right in the summertime they're spread out much more difficult to catch in November they've kind of figured out where these fish tend to go on some of these shoals and whatnot so they can increase their probability of encountering one of these and then when they do because they're so low density Black Lake is an absolute fish factory with unbelievable productivity those fish get enormous uh of every species in that lake you know they get those fish green bay i can tell you why they're in the fox in the spring and there are radio studies that suggest a lot of muskies late in the fall will kind of gravitate towards where they spawn in the spring Mm -hmm. and perhaps what's happening on green bay and this is uh let's call this uh, part of the segment recul- reckless speculation sure shall we yeah that's fair okay let's get into the reckless speculation so my reckless idea on this is that those really big fish are not necessarily focusing on the gizzard shad that are headed to the fox in the fall my guess would be they're probably associating with the uh, whitefish spawn and or any salmon or trout that are hanging out in green bay at that time of year and they're not in that location in maybe October, November. Now my hypothesis would also go as far as to say that these fish probably end up headed back that way as the, as the whitefish spawn ceases and maybe some of these Delmonids uh, change location. And so as it gets closer to springtime, those fish will end up there because we do net them there and people do catch them there. So that would be my guess as to what's happening. Most of the time, muskie anglers, and and I know, you know, I know Kevin, and I know many other really good anglers on Green Bay, is if, if the fish are there, they're more, more likely to catch them than, any, than anyone else. So if they're not catching these, you know, 52 to 55-inch fish on Green Bay in, the, in October, November, then they're probably not in that location. The Green Bay is big. It's bigger than Mille Lacs. Oh, yeah. So, yeah, like you three, know, three it, times it's big. as big, yeah. Yeah, so if they want to be out in, you know, in 87 feet of water on a shoal that comes up to 32 where the whitefish spawn and they want to chew on whitefish and eat an occasional brown trout or salmon that swim by, they don't have any problem doing that. Mm-hmm. So my guess would be is that they're just not there in numbers um, at this time and they will be at other times, you know, because they do catch them. You're right. But I haven't actually, until you told me this today or, at, you know, we had this conversation. I wasn't really, I, I never really thought that, that was the case, but at the same time, you're right. I, I basically quit fishing on Halloween and I sit in a tree. And so. I, I know you're not the only one. And so maybe it's, maybe it is that lack of angler pressure that, that does it. But my other, my other thought, since we're going to recklessly hypothesize about things, my other thought this segment. was since, 
the musky pressure is okay. So I've been fishing Green Bay for quite a long time, and I'm not I'm not by any means a pioneer. But the early pioneers of Green Bay musky fishing, they didn't go venture out into the bay in September, October. They wait. They were waiting until those fish showed up in the river in November, because that's when that's when they would fish them. They would fish them for a month or till you know. At, yeah, at that point, the season closed November thirtieth. So they would literally fish these fish for a month. And it seems like as the angling pressure has increased. We've pushed the boundaries farther and farther trying to find these muskies farther and farther out in the bay. And so I wasn't sure if angling pressure had something to do with poor results in November. That was, that's my hypothesis. I don't know why it would have anything to do. You told me earlier in this uh, podcast about a, a muskie caught on a topwater one day after it was caught. No, granted, yep. a little pond, whatever, but muskies are muskies are muskies. So they can't, so that's why, that's where my recklessly, you know, my reckless thoughts, uh, fall apart on, on that. I just, I don't, I don't know. I, I was out in the boat last week when I'm out in the boat by myself, I got nothing to do but think about things. And I thought, Hmm, it's kind of odd that I never see a giant green bay muskie in November. I don't see giant green bay muskies ever. Everybody else catches Me either. Them. <laughs> Me either. I get like 30 inches every time I go out there. Mine still have yolk sacks on them. They're so young. <laughs> and I'm not a lot different, honestly. But I don't spend a lot of time out there like I used to. When I was fishing there in the heyday, those, you know, those, those true giants, they weren't available, really. It was, you were lucky. I mean, I wouldn't say you were lucky, but 46, 47s were pushing that range a lot, and you just didn't see a lot of those 52, 53s, 54s that you hear about now. But yeah, um, yeah, I I don't know. Like it just seems really strange to me. I, maybe there's, you know, it's also possible that a lot of the guides I know they're they're done fishing. You know, like you said, right around the 31st of October. Some of them are even done a little earlier. So I don't know if that has something to do with it or not, but just something I was thinking about since I had you on. I wasn't sure if you had any other further information because I know those fish, they're going to be there in the spring. I mean, they are. They're going to show up in the nets in the spring. So they clearly go from wherever they are right now into the Fox River sometime in the next six months. Yeah, I mean, it is possible that they they have had some sort of, you know, behavioral change. My grad work. I had radios in 36 muskies, so I followed 36 fish around for a couple summers, kind of learning their ins and outs. I didn't get a lot of work done in the wintertime, but I, I did have a couple fish of the 36. I had two fish that actually were angled, and they changed their behavior after that for a short amount of time. And so it's possible that this, even though November pressure might not be as as much as it is other times of the year, it's possible that these fish, you know, being caught multiple times in that lower Bay area, you know, in the fall has, has changed their behavior so that they, they show up later. Um, it's possible. I, I don't want to give these fish a, a thought process that says, Hey, you know, I got caught here last year and on Halloween, I don't want to do that again. So I'm going to wait. But it's possible that they do change their behavior because the two fish in my grad research certainly did for a short period of time after they were angled. Well, it's funny you say that because I didn't want to give them too much credit either. Like they are, they literally do have a brain about the size of a freaking quarter, I believe. And so. Yeah, uh, 57 probably has that big a brain, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, so the, I that's the thing. And 
and again, they don't know, they, you know, like it was funny you said that we don't, you know, I don't want to show up there in October. They have no basis of a calendar. I mean, they, they don't have a thought process in their head, really. They only, the only reason they eat stuff is because they have to eat to survive. But if they want to know what it is, they need to eat it. They don't have hands to touch it. So, right. Yeah. Which is why you can catch them on, on some of these baits that people sell, right? hundred percent. They, they don't even look like food, like a bucktail. What the heck is that? What does that look like? Exactly. Tinsel, tinsel and metal. And yep. they caught more muskies than any other bait in the world. So yep. it's crazy. But yeah, I mean, they do, I believe they do have some sort of circadian rhythm that kind of dictates what they do. You know, day length or uh, day length and water temperature that, that dictates when they come to certain areas to spawn, you know. But yeah, you're, you're right. We don't want to give them too much uh, credit for thinking. Exactly. All right. Well, that's all I got for today. Maybe sometime between now and the next time I get John, I'll hear somebody that, that caught a giant in November or maybe even December, depending on what the weather does. It doesn't look great, but uh, maybe there's a chance. But anyways, Jordan, I want to thank you for coming on. Just to let people know this, you know, it's 1015 at night when we're finishing this podcast. It's not like Jordan's sitting in an office getting paid to be on the podcast. He's, you know, he's doing it on his own free will because he is passionate about muskies, much like the rest of us anglers listening to this podcast. So, uh, you know, I just want to thank you for taking time out of your schedule. I know that there's, this probably isn't the only thing you'd rather be doing tonight, especially since it got a little later than we anticipated. You know, Brad was asking me, he's like, I'm going to miss the podcast. What do you think it's going to be like 45 minutes? I was like, yeah, maybe. (laughs) So, uh, here we are hour and 15 minutes later talking, you know, just random thoughts on muskies. But anyways, Jordan, I I do want to thank you again for coming out. It's, it's uh, always a fun time. I always like talking this kind of stuff with you and maybe that's why I got to an hour and 15 minutes. Hey, no problem. I really appreciate the the platform and you letting me come on and talk a little bit. And and you're right. I do that. I really care about these fish and I want to make sure that by the time I'm done working for the state of Wisconsin, that, that musky fishing is better than, than when I showed up in 1999. So thanks for the opportunity. And, you know, maybe, uh, we'll have to, after we get off this, we'll have to talk about some of the reasons I caught 55 this year. Cause I think I have a pretty good idea why that happened. All right. Good deal. Well, we want to thank everybody, you know, like I said, Jordan, and I do think that you definitely doing, you know, positive work to, uh, to leave it in better hands than when you found it. And hopefully you're not done for a little while, at least. I mean, 99, uh, you probably got, well, you probably got a little ways to go yet. I, I think if I did the math, although I haven't looked at, at it really closely, it may be 12, 12 years. Um, but I do want to outlast some folks. So I want to make sure that I, I do that. Um, but I will guarantee you this, the first day that I can afford to retire, I shall be retired. Yeah. Then you get to go and uh, enjoy the fruits of your labor, right? I mean, literally. Yeah. Then you should have me on the podcast. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm sure we'll have the, you around. The day after I retire, it'll be a great, it'll be a great podcast. <laughs> I always say that about the day after I sell TRO, I reach the, I'm done selling fishing lures. I'll have tons of great stories. It's going to be awesome. <laughs> <laughs> now that's the podcast you want to stick around for. <laughs> we can maybe do it at the same time yeah. we're both same age so that would be great yep alright well we want to thank all of our listeners for putting up with us again this week I know this one got a little bit longer than our past podcast but thank you for sticking around and we'll catch everybody with a new episode again next Wednesday 